0: Last Sunday morning when we concluded our worship services, we had numerous people literally in tears because they know that they're not getting to the back of the boat where God wants them to be. They're not resting in the storm as Jesus did. They're also not calming the storm within because their lives are way too busy. They're overcommitted, and they're facing time crunches and deadlines left and right. Now, it's one thing to appreciate the value of rest, It's quite another, though, to create more of it in our everyday lives. Here's what I know for a fact. Getting to the back of the boat time, like our Savior and Lord Jesus did, rest time that we long for and we need will never happen unless we decide to make it happen. Jesus had been in the front of the boat. He'd been sitting on the seats all day. Remember that from verse 1 and and verse 2 of Mark? Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd gathered around them so was so large that he got into a boat and he sat in it out on the lake while the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And the seats were in the front of the boat. So we know that's where Jesus was. And he'd been teaching all day. And when he concluded his teaching, at the end of the day, his closest followers climbed into the boat with him. And they set sail for the opposite shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 10 miles away. And for Jesus to get to the back of the boat, he would have had to get gotten up and walked right past everyone else to go to the back of the boat and find the cushion and lay down and fall asleep. Verses 35 and 36 of our text say, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. In verse 36, Leaving the crowd behind, They took him along just as he was. Catch that? Just as he was in the boat. Where was he? He was sitting in the front seats where he had been teaching all the day long. And then other boats went along with him. And then verse 38 tells us Jesus was in the stern. All of a sudden, now he's in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Because the storms of life had come along. Now, this is conjecture on my part, but undoubtedly the disciples would have wanted this alone time with Jesus. After all, they'd shared him all day with the crowds, and no doubt they would have wanted some one-on-one or small group time because they weren't in the boat with him. They were in the crowds along with everybody else, but they would have wanted to interact with him. And Jesus literally would have had to get up, walk right past his closest associates to rest in the back of the boat. In other words, Jesus made this a priority in his life. He made it happen. And the same is true for us. Rest time like this will never happen if we don't choose for it to happen, if we don't make it happen. And it's also no no one else's fault. If it doesn't happen in our lives, if we allow ourselves to get too busy... We're doing this to whom? We're doing this to ourselves. Jesus was busy. He had gone hard all day. He had taught all day, but he carved out time for himself. And we sometimes don't seem to know our limits, even what is healthy for us to be doing. As well-meaning as our spouse may be, or family members could be, or members of uh, uh, friends, or church acquaintances, or even pastors may be, or try to be, None of these people are responsible for setting aside enough time for our personal replenishment. You are. And as a pastor, I can tell you, I think that you're overloaded. I think that you're doing too much. I think that you're, you're practicing an unhealthy schedule. But I can't begin to change your personal habits. Only you can do that. And for me as a pastor, getting people to realize that their lives and their schedules are out of control is usually the first step toward them making respite a daily part of their routine. So what is it, what is it, that tends to lead us to become overcommitted and not join Jesus in the back of the boat? Well, one, I think, is the myth of our own indispensability, that we're just indispensable. We're too important. We're too valuable to the process. And if you want a job done right, you have to do what? You gotta do it yourself, right? That's the mantra. That's the American way. That's the rugged Western individual way. We gotta do it ourselves. Well, to get to the back of the boat, you actually have to be countercultural. We have to believe what is unbelievable to us. That life will go along just fine without us. Isn't that, isn't that radical? That life's just gonna go on with us. Believing ourselves to be essential feeds our egos, and it causes us to try to live up to the demands of inflated importance. Now, all of us are unique. We're all snowflakes, like those snowflakes that are falling out there right now. We're all unique in that sense. No two are alike, yet all of us are replaceable in terms of our jobs, our vocations, our ministries, our community involvements. And in the near future, this church is going to find my replacement. And the ministry and the mission of the church are going to go along just as they need to go along. And this will happen. Why? Because I am replaceable. All of us are. And the truth is, we are more replaceable than we care to admit. You know, the famous 19th century English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon is credited with basically ruining this resting-in-the-storm biblical teaching for pastors because he's famous for having said, a minister, whoever he or she is, is a minister and should recollect that he or she is on duty. A policeman or a soldier may be off duty, but a minister never is. He basically said pastors are never off duty. Pastors never get a day off. Now, I have to tell you that over the years, I've had to break away from a number of vacations uh, midstream in those vacations. I even once had to leave an ordination class that was beginning on a Monday morning. Uh, I had to go in, tell the instructor in Chicago, Illinois, that I couldn't be there for that class that week because of a crisis, a tragedy, that had happened back home. I had to do that numerous times in my career as a ministry. Besides that, there's all the soft ministry times that occur. When you're not really on duty, when you might be in town shopping on a day off or an evening off, you might be out at a restaurant, or maybe you just stop at the post office in Poplar or the hardware store, or when we used to have a grocery store, and then someone begins to what? They begin to talk to you. And chat with you. And pretty soon it's 15 minutes or half an hour long. Pretty soon it becomes a ministry situation. And I have to tell you, this was way worse when the church used to have a parsonage. And we used to live, before they extended County Road D straight out to Highway 2, it curved there right in front of the parsonage. And when we were first here in those first four and a half years, if people saw me out in the yard, their cars just automatically turned into the parsonage. And it could be people in the community. It could be people, you know, in the church. But people would stop by periodically. It got so bad that I literally couldn't get any yard work done. So I started raking leaves in the dark. It was the only way I could get my yard work done. And you're in a rural community. You're in a small town. You can't be rude to people. You need to be nice to everybody. You can't be short with people or all those things. And so there we are. And we even had a rule when our children were growing up and we're traveling somewhere or we need to get to an event that if we had to stop at the grocery store or the gas station or, or uh, you know, part of the time here we didn't have a gas station. But any of those things, stop at the post office, dad couldn't leave the vehicle. That was the rule, okay? The kids would go in. Uh, my wife would go in because they knew what would happen. Those soft ministry opportunities would occur and they're all stuck sitting waiting in the car. And pretty soon we're late for our event. You know, in African-American churches, this is even worse, In Charles Hamilton's book, The Black Preacher in America, he writes, the church was pretty much unrivaled in black communities as a major institution for black people. There were no labor unions. Few social, political, or economic agencies existed in black communities, especially among lower classes. The church was the center, and the black pastor emerged as the central undisputed figure of this pivotal institution. What this perpetuated in the black community was the myth of indispensability of the black preacher. When whites wanted to communicate with the black community uh, to either give or to receive a message, what did they do? They went to the black preacher. And the black preacher was the conduit, whether it was a man or a woman. And vice versa, when the black community wanted to communicate with white people, they looked to their preachers and this alone led to a mammoth, multifaceted role for pastors. A well-known 20th and 21st century pa- black pastor, E.V. Hill, said, the problem is when we try to, do, to be all things to all people, this becomes a bottomless pit. Do you ever catch yourself doing that? Ever catch yourself trying to please every person who's in your world, ever catch yourself doing what you shouldn't be doing or doing things that you're not even good at doing. We have to face this monster within each one of us of indispensability if we're ever going to join Jesus in the back of the boat. And here's the real kicker in all of this. If ever there was someone who fit the bill of being indispensable, who would that be? Who would that individual B who shouldn't be taking any time off, shouldn't be resting in the back of the boat. It's whom? It's Jesus. That's the obvious. And Jesus still said no to things. And he said no to people. And he walked right past his 12 closest associates, his disciples, so he could get to the back of the boat and care for his human body. And you know, sadly, Christians do say no to some things. They, They do say no to things. But it always tends to be ministry-related things. It tends to be God-centered things. And they're saying yes to all kinds of secular and pagan interests and activities. And it's all because of this notion, this myth that we're indispensable. Now, a second delusion I think that people tend to buy into uh, is that keeps us from the back of the boat is one that I've kind of briefly referred to here this morning. But it's invincibility. You know, that we can just keep charging ahead in our lives at this breakneck ridiculous pace and everything's just going to be okay. You know, what tends to happen to our vehicles if we don't maintain them? If we don't regularly check our fluids, if we don't regularly have our oil changed or, or other fluids uh, changed at recommended manufacturers' intervals, if we don't test our coolant to make sure it can handle the harsh winter that's before us or periodically get our radiators flushed, if we don't get our U joints lubed or our ball joints lubed, or if we don't replace our brake pads at appropriate interviews or our tires either, we also seem to understand full well that we should test our batteries once in a while and every five or six years or so, we replace the batteries in our cars and then we even do something so crazy around here as recharge our air conditioning once in a while, okay? Because if we don't do these things, We can end up with some pretty costly major breakdowns or even accidents or we simply might end up stranded alongside the road and it usually happens in some of the worst weather or we end up in a scorching hot car on one of those uh, hot summer days. We seem to know all too well that our vehicles are not invincible yet somehow we think that our hearts and our minds and our bodies are. That we can just keep racing our body's engines, revving them up, even redlining, if you will, the tachometers of our bodies and not face any consequences or long-term consequences as a result. What is it that makes us think that we are above it all? Yes, I understand young people growing up in this world whose brains haven't completely developed yet, uh, haven't completely... Together, I understand young people doing dumb things, risky things, having the old attitude that they're bulletproof, that they're immortal and invincible. I get that, but those of us who've lived for a while, who supposedly brains are now fused together, okay, Who, who have matured, we're the people who should know better. Jesus did, that's why he took a break from teaching, from healing. From preaching, from discipling, from mentoring, from fellowship, from socializing, and he rested. And I hope you realize today that these overgrown notions of indispensability and invincibility are what are keeping us from making it to the back of the boat. You know, and perhaps the greatest delusion of all that we tend to buy into that prevents back-of-the-boat time is the subjugation. Of our own personhood. See, one of the most precious gifts that God offers each one of us is being created as a person, a being in God's image. Before we were ever made as male or female, before we were ever a boy or a girl or a man or a woman or a husband or a wife, before we were ever a dad or a mom or a grandpa or a grandma, before we were ever a son or a daughter or a friend or an employee of some sort. We were created in God's image as a child of God, a person of God, a person whom God loves unconditionally. And too often, people fail to humbly see and value themselves. In those cases, people's value then comes from achievement. It comes from recognition. It comes from success or talent or production, attention, and the like before long people cannot see themselves apart from what they do or what apart from what they produce so in that context what do we end up doing we end up striving we end up scurrying around in a frenzy and we get all caught up in endless doing because we need the two a's of our culture we need achievement and we need affirmation for those achievements now, Pastor Nathan, who's on vacation today, along with Pastor James, uh, Pastor Nathan and I have many friends in the hunting world because of our passion for hunting mature whitetail deer. And because of Nathan's, Pastor Nathan's outdoor YouTube hunting channel, Stillwater Outdoors. Now, one of our friends right now in our, our friendship circle outside of this region is an absolute funk right now because he, he's been hunting so hard this year, and he hasn't harvested a nice buck. He doesn't have anything that he's produced on film out there that he can put out. And the problem with him is that his identity is all wrapped up in shooting big deer. Now, we've had many opportunities to share our faith with him and have been doing so regularly because we're trying to point him in a different direction. Now, Pastor Nathan and I are truly grateful for having harvested some nice bucks this year and particularly having you overcome some real challenges to make this happen. Now, please allow me and forgive me and all those things to indulge here for a few minutes right now. And we're gonna put up a picture of a buck that Nathan harvested in Illinois. And I think it will work. Uh, I'm not sure if they can find that slide, but some of you have probably seen it already online. And uh, nonetheless, he harvested this buck sitting on the ground in some tall grass under a cedar tree along a fence line with a bow and arrow with another big buck out there plus multiple does and other deer all around him in a cut cornfield. And worse yet, he videoed it. He filmed that hunt trying to film as well as trying to harvest the deer as well. What an amazing experience. And then just a little while ago, I was able to harvest a nice buck here in Wisconsin And uh, it was uh, a neat experience because I literally had to sit motionless in the stand for 45 minutes, not moving a muscle because I had some big does feeding out in a food plot in front of me and I literally had to have my eyes closed for 45 minutes because I knew uh, if one of those does bust me who were really alert, then the buck's not coming and I'm not going to get that. But I have to tell you, as exciting as it was to get a nice deer like that, Uh, I had really wanted one of the younger family members of my family to go to this stand. It's only the second time all fall anybody would have hunted in this stand, and we particularly stayed out of there because we weren't getting any daylight pictures of this buck, and so we're not going in there to mess it up if we don't think we got a legitimate chance of getting that particular deer. But the family member didn't want to go there, didn't think uh, they were going to see any deer. So it would have meant more to me to have a younger family member harvest that deer. Uh, it was also really, really exciting to be with Nathan and to recover that deer that he shot, to hear the story about it, to be with my two brothers on that and a couple of my very best friends uh, experience that together, that was remarkable. But none of those were even my most exciting hunt of the year. My most exciting hunt was 11 days ago, sitting in a stand on the edge of a winter wheat field in southeastern Illinois and having a 200-inch buck tending a doe out in front of me out of bow range. And for 45 minutes, I watched this activity go on and we couldn't draw them in close enough to bow range, but it was one of those lifetime experiences. Biggest buck I'd ever seen in my years of hunting. The buck I shot there was the 55th buck I've seen, okay, this year. I mean, I, I, nothing like it. In our years of having the hunting X, Hunters Expo here, we've only had two bucks in the show that ever rivaled the buck that I saw. So not getting one. Is, was so exciting to me and so important. But if, we value, if our value gets tied up in what we do, not in who we are in Jesus or not who we are in God's eyes, we will constantly try to achieve to get the world's affirmation. And when it doesn't work out, we're going to go around in a funk. That's what's going to happen. To see ourselves for who we truly are, is to not see one of God's great works. If we don't see ourselves the way God does, we don't see one of God's great works in this world. Because we are one of God's great works in this world. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Yes, we are to do good works in this world. Yes, God has a specific purpose, and each one of us are called to do what he's gifted us and prepared us and and talented us for and all of those things. But it says we are God's workmanship. Some of your translations would say we are God's handiwork. And what it literally means is that we are God's poetic expression to this world. God is a poet. And he writes poems. And one of those poems is me. One of those poems is you. That's God's artistic expression. We are one of God's great works in this world. And please understand today that good theology honors God. And it honors God's creation at the same time. God has created us to worship him. And to care for ourselves at the very same time. Good theology is holy theology and it is healthy theology in conjunction with one another. Now allow allow me to ask some very important questions at this juncture. Was Jesus any less God's son when he went to the back of the boat? Was he any less the Messiah when he laid down on that cushion? Was he any less the Savior of the world When he rested, was he any less the sovereign Lord of the universe when he slept? The answer to all those rhetorical questions is an obvious no. He was God's son despite what he was not doing and despite what he was not achieving in the boat. His resting did not change his relationship with God the Father or God the Holy Spirit one bit. Look at verses 38 through 41. Of course, the disciples had inappropriately uh, challenged him. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is God, and yet God rests. And by the way, who created the entire world in six days and then on the seventh day created the Sabbath? Who did that? God did that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, through chapter 2, verse 3, all about that. God saw all that he had made, And it was very good. Every time God created something, plants, animals, the day, sun, moon, stars, the water, all those things, every time God did something on each day, he said it was good, good, good. God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, let me ask you this. Do you know how to tell when a brother or sister in Christ is overloaded? When they're too busy? They tend to be more edgy. They tend to be short with their answers and and responses. They tend to have less time for people. And they also look tired, look for the bags under their eyes. And the telltale sign, though, is they seem to not have any joy in life. And many times, no joy in the Lord. When Jesus went to the back of the boat that day, it wasn't just a spontaneous act on his part. Jesus intentionally took some time for himself. Yes, some very good back-of-the-boat times do happen spontaneously. They do occur in the spur of the moment like that. But the truth be told, most of the real good back-of-the-boat times are planned. They're scheduled opportunities. And if we do not build in times of rest into our schedules like Jesus did, we will be less likely to have them at all. Now, these times simply cannot wait till things slow down in our life or till we get sick or till some disease strikes us or till the aging process really takes hold or, or until some injury demands it. We need, as Kirk Bryan James says, to pray, play, and rest regularly to experience life as a blessing instead of seeing life as a curse. We need the back of the boat time to personally experience our full acceptance that we have in God and enjoy life apart from striving and stress. We need to start listening to our own body's stop signs. We need to discover in God's economy that less is more. We need to learn that in Christ Jesus, we are not what we do. Instead, we do what we are. In the Christian faith, rest is a normal part of life in Christ and yes I also understand that in following Christ's example of resting in the storms of life there are going to be losses there will be things that we will have to give up there will be things that we can no longer do when Jesus laid down in the back of the boat on the cushion he was no longer the center of everyone's attention like he was when he was teaching in the front of the boat. He was no longer overseeing what was going on. He was no longer directing everyone or making sure that things were being done right or things were being done God's way. He even gave up for that time his multifaceted role as a preacher, teacher, healer, and master of the boat to simply be Jesus, a child of God. Friends, God never intended for our work, for our passions, for our hobbies, our ministries, or anything else in our lives to supersede our personhood. Rather, all of those things are to come out of our personhood, out of our identity as beloved children of God who are created like God in His image, the God who rested. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will always do our best and greatest work in life when we are firmly rooted. In who we are. To simply focus on doing and neglect our beings is to wrongly live out both. And it is to short circuit the totality of all that we do and all that we are. Would you please join me in prayer? God our Father, we thank you for this amazing account in the Bible, uh, an account we've been able to look at for two consecutive weeks to see that, yes, Jesus is a sovereign Lord of the universe. He was all-powerful. Even the winds and the waves obey his voice. And yet in the midst of the busyness of his life and of the demands that people placed upon him and all the challenges he faced and all the things he had to overcome in life, he recognized the importance of rest. He recognized the importance of replenishment and refueling by just caring for his own human body because he was fully God and yet he was fully human. God, we thank you for the example of Jesus today that he models for us that no has to become part of our vocabulary, but it has to be a wise no, not a foolish no. And Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to know what we should say yes to, what we should say no to, and how we can truly care for these temples of the Holy Spirit, our physical bodies that you've given to us so that we can minister and be in this life for the long haul and accomplish what you have created us to do as your workmanship, your handiwork in this world. Thank you, God, for the lives that you've given to us. And God, we want to graciously receive all that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray.